Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Episode 583 with my guest Gabe Howard. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It is not a doctor's office. More like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, The website for this show is metalpod.com. Metalpod, also the social media handles you can follow us at. Um... I have been feeling a bit out of it lately, and I'm not sure why. I haven't had a massage in probably over a year, and I got one on um, Monday, um, which would have been like four days ago. And I don't know, maybe maybe it released a bunch of toxins into my body, but I've been feeling kind of run down and just spacey and... Um, kind of a vague sense of emptiness. <laughs> this is getting more and more, I don't know, spiritually serious. The more I, the more I talk about a, a feeling that life is is meaningless and what is their point on this planet? No, not uh, not quite that bad, but just a feeling that that something is off. And I thought, boy, that that is a feeling that I bet a lot of people can relate to. And one of the reasons why I started this podcast was. It, you know, after I started getting sober and going to support groups, I realized that's just the tip of the, that's not the solution uh, per se. That's just the set of tools to begin to figure out why I'm not running at 100% on any given day. Um, and I'm, I, I guess I'm in one of those places where I don't really know because I'm going to my support groups, I'm exercising. I'm half-ass meditating and half-ass yoga-ing. That's the school of yoga I go to is uh, with the yogi half-ass. Uh, yeah, I just feel like I'm going through the motions. And I've been through this before. I know it passes. 
that, that sense of vitality will, will come back at some point. But, um, I just, I hate that feeling of, of the things that normally bring you pleasure. You know, the excitement when you curl up on the couch and you got something to watch on Netflix. I look at Netflix and I'm like, nothing seems interesting. And so I've just been laying down at like eight o'clock at night and, and I don't know. Let's read a survey. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Hi right now. And hi as in H-I-G-H. And she says, just wondering if you'll ever switch up the surveys and or add more categories. Well, I am open to um, suggestions for new surveys that I could uh, create or questions that you would like to see added to surveys. So uh, just under this survey, Ask Paul Anything, uh, send me any suggestions that you might have. Uh, Any comments to make the podcast better? I get so much out of your show. Thank you. My one observation would be that I don't often hear interviews or discussions with people who had a growing up similar to mine, which was no alcohol or drug abuse by my parents, but plenty with the children, no physical abuse and no verbal abuse in the sense of not much screaming or yelling. But my parents were very withholding and had extremely high expectations for their children and their love was very conditional. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. First of all, I'm sorry that you, that was your experience because uh, sadly, that's really common. And I think that can be one of the hurdles to people having compassion for themselves is they're like, well, I wasn't beaten. You know, I was fed. I was even, you know, given money for college. That's beside the point that conditional love will do a fucking number on your brain. And there's an episode we did with Dr. Janice Webb uh, about emotional neglect. She also has an incredible book about it called Running on Empty. So I I recommend not only listening to that episode with her, it was from a couple of years ago, um, but read her book because it is a real thing and the effects of growing up with conditional love or emotional neglect is very fucking real and very, very far reaching. So thank you. Thank you for your, um, your question and your suggestion. Uh, this is from the ask Paul anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself OCDing about my OCD medication, uh, in the parentheses, as my therapist says, uh, hi, Paul, long time listener, first time surveyor. I have a question about medication and gut health. I've been on and off Prozac for about 10 years to treat OCD and depression. I'm currently off of it, but have been really struggling lately and went so far as to get the prescription again from my psychiatrist. So I have it in my hands, but I'm hesitating on starting it up again because I also struggle with an autoimmune disease and have a leaky gut. And for those of you that don't know, leaky gut is Uh, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, but where if you have like an abundance of yeast or in other things, they can kind of worm their way into the lining of your gut. And then your, your, uh, gut kind of uh, leaks and it drains your energy. It fucks with your immune system. Uh, you, you feel uh, run down, you get really bloated. Sometimes you can get diarrhea, Uh, I experienced that for about 10 years, and then I read a book called The Body Ecology Diet that kind of changed my life, and I totally revamped my diet, and it it helped 
greatly. But back to her uh, survey, uh, I am slowly making dietary lifestyle changes to address the systemic inflammation in my body. Um, and But on days when I feel really low or depressed or stuck in an awful OCD spiral, I don't give a fuck about healthy eating. I'm stuck in this conundrum of needing to address and help my mental health, and Prozac has definitely helped in the past, but taking it might exacerbate my autoimmune struggles. I feel like a snake eating its tail. Um, I Super important question, and I don't feel qualified to truly weigh in on this. Um, I, I would maybe go see an autoimmunologist, um, I think a really good call would be to go see uh, a health practitioner, um, you know, maybe an Eastern health practitioner, because sometimes herbs can really uh, address a lot of those things. Uh, as as great as Western medicine can be, sometimes it's it's really uh, not the best answer for things, because it can sometimes create additional problems, the side effects of them. Um, But I am somebody that takes meds, and um, I don't believe it affects my gut in the way that you're describing, but every person is different. So I don't know if that that helps. Was that a waste of time, me reading that? Did I just make you more confused? This is from the racism survey filled out by TJ, and uh, she is uh, black, She is in her 50s, and she writes, The first experience I remember was when I was five. I was walking home alone from school, and a pickup truck full of what looked like grown men to me yelled the N-word at me and laughed as they drove past. I was scared to death that they were going to kidnap me. I never told my family because I had a father who never believed anything I said. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? Terrified and puzzled. I wondered why anyone would say something so threatening, and it does feel like a threat of violence to me, to a 50-pound child. How was I a problem for them? How do you feel about it now? Angry and hurt, because until then I felt comfortable walking alone. I live in an area where Trump flags fly on pickup trucks daily, even after he lost. I like to go for walks in my neighborhood, and seeing those trucks make me feel like that five-year-old all over again. Yes, I know a lot of Trump supporters feel they aren't racist, but they should at least acknowledge that he ran on a platform that supports white supremacy, even if they chose to ignore it. I find their willingness to be complicit upsetting. I had a friend who was white tell me he would protect me. I told him, this is my country too. Why should I need your protection? He voted for Trump anyway and bought the MAGA hat. Yeah, so much for that. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? I have five siblings. We have all done those things society says we need to be accepted. We have obeyed the law, went to college, worked hard, paid our taxes and debts, behave in a civil manner to our fellow citizens regardless of cultural background. In other words, exactly what we are told to do which would disqualify us from being called that vile word. But in reality, we are still fair game for racist rants and name-calling. 
It is so incredibly depressing to know the truth is there is nothing I can do to change any of it. I just try to focus on being the kind of person I want to see in the world and hiding my disappointment in those who don't see me as human. Thank you for that. Not surprising. Not surprising. But um, it's... it's. Um, I think a lot of people like me who consider ourselves to be um, a friend of minorities and marginalized communities that we've heard everything there is to hear. We know uh, the plight of marginalized people. And then I read a survey like that and, and it, it brings, uh, it makes it even more real uh, to me. And it just reminds me that, that uh, I don't think if we want to be a friend to marginalized communities, uh, I don't think we're ever done in having our ears open and uh, I don't know if that makes sense. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Delaney. And about her depression, she writes, it's like drowning, not for air, but for energy, clarity, and motivation. Holy fuck, is that a good one? And my God, do I relate to that about her anxiety. Feels like someone took my brain apart and put it back together completely wrong. Emotions don't match the stimuli, like a car that gives you radio when you want windows down and gives you the horn when you want wipers. I get no fully formed thoughts, just fragments. Uh, she struggles with heroin and fentanyl. Uh, for when I'm for when feeling is too much, if I have crippling anxiety and depression with that opioid buffer, how the fuck could I possibly deal without it? About narcolepsy, it really gets set off when I am anxious or stressed. I'm so sick of people telling me, get up and walk when you feel tired, or have you been checked for diabetes, or hypothyroidism, etc., or did you not sleep last night? Uh, I do not feel it coming on. Yes, I've been checked for everything. Actually, I slept 11 hours plus last night. 11 hours last night plus a two-hour nap after work every day. Narcolepsy is not fiction. It's a fucking nightmare. Snapshot from her life. As soon as I notice that I've stopped thinking about killing myself, my anxiety kicks in because now... I have to deal with everything I've been avoiding. And then I think, but if I kill myself, none of this matters. And the suicidal thoughts cycle back. This has been a continuous cycle for over a year. Well, thank you for that survey. That, that, uh, that's a lot, man. That is a lot for a human being to, to be battling. And, and I really hope that you can get some some support because holy shit how can one brain handle all that especially when it, the, you know the very brain that is dealing with distortion is the sole source of information we're relying on to help it 
And speaking of help, we are sponsored this week by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, people don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Uh, stress has definitely been something that has been in my life, and it's almost <laughs> never related to actual objective stressful situations it's things that i create in my mind i like to joke that i could win the lottery and i would be stressed out about having to go to the bank um, better help is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to i am a big fan of better help i've been doing it for years it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, so give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. And this podcast, as I said, is sponsored by BetterHelp, and you guys get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp, at your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. This episode is sponsored by Prolon. Extended fasting of at least two to three days has unique benefits such as cellular rejuvenation, an idea that was awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize in Medicine. And Prolon is based on that. It's a plant-based nutrition program that nourishes the body while making cells believe that they're fasting. Uh, my package just arrived. It's uh, each day has its own little container with very clear instructions on how you're going to do it. And I'm very interested to, to see how, uh, how it's going to go. Prolon isn't a diet. Prolon is science. Right now, Prolon is offering Metal Illness Happy Hour listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash podcast. That's P-R-O-L-O-N life.com slash podcast for this special offer. That's prolonlife.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. And then finally... This is an awful moment. 
filled out by Dee Dee, and she writes, When I was 16, I signed up for an after-school typing class. One day, as I was headed out the door for class, I grabbed a stack of paper from my parents' printer. At a stoplight, I noticed some writing on the paper. To my horror, it was a scathing letter that my mother wrote to a woman my dad was having an affair with, complete with references to fingernail scratches on my dad's back. I turned the car around and put the paper back where I found it. I didn't tell anyone about the letter for more than a decade. I quit the typing class and still blame that damn letter for my inability to type. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I'm with Gabe Howard. Uh, our paths crossed years ago, but we're finally sitting down and doing this. Uh, Gabe uh, has a podcast called Inside Metal Health, and you are a fellow nut job. And uh, <laughs> it's nice we're finally sitting down and uh, and doing this. Uh, among your potpourri of uh, afflictions is uh, is bipolar. Um, bipolar one or electric boogaloo? Uh, <laughs> Bi -bi bipolar one is my official. Actually, I think my official diagnosis is bipolar with psychotic features. Mm. Uh, but but we'll we'll just go with bipolar one to not scare any listeners. Gotcha. And for for people that uh, aren't familiar with the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two, um, talk talk about that if you would yeah so people want to say that bipolar one is more serious than bipolar two which that that's that's kind of like determining what's more serious falling down two flights of stairs or one flight of stairs i i think they're both pretty damn serious right the difference is is bipolar two is suicidal depression all the way up to hypomania whereas bipolar one is suicidal depression all the way up to like full blown mania. So, so hypomania is one step below. I think I'm God and can fly to, right. to put it in layman's terms. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's really the difference. There, there's some other slight differences here and there, but I, I do like to push back on this. Bipolar two is less severe than bipolar one. Okay. Because I and I'm guilty this, of, uh, uh, of saying that. Yeah. yeah a, lot, a lot of people say, it, and I understand why I, I really do, but I, I don't know. I think if it's happening to you, it's, it's, it's pretty severe. So yeah, I, I heard somebody say one time, there's two kinds of bipolar, the one that gets you promoted and the one that gets you fired. <laughs> it, it, the, I, there's so much we can say there, Paul, you, you know, mania just, oh man, it, 
Mania has the best public relations team in the entire world, right? Because Mania is just, it's so deadly. It, 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 it hurts everything. It wrecks your damn life, but yet it's romanticized. People think it's fun and cool and you achieve so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, none of that's true. I think hypomania, that might be the, the case, you know, if, if assuming that you're uh, not going to count the promiscuity and the credit card bills. Right, right. So hypomania being that level below there and, and you know, everything's on a spectrum, right? right? So so hypomania, like right at the beginning, there's sort of that ride the lightning that, that people it's kind of describe. such an amazing feeling. One, they're all amazing feelings. But yes. like many things, just because it feels good doesn't mean that it right. is. Is good. Right. Uh, yeah, I think there is a little bit of harnessing at the beginning that that a lot of energy and if you can keep focused and if you can keep moving forward and, and not, you know, start 37,000 projects at the same time, right, then, then yeah, I, I think there is some harnessing that can be done. But I also wonder how many people are calling a lot of energy or a lot of enthusiasm or a lot of excitement, and they're just rebranding that as hypomania. Mm-hmm. Maybe they haven't hit the hypomania yet. Maybe right. they're like hypomania adjacent, but that that's, yeah. yeah, you know, we could, we could discuss and, that until we're purple. And yeah. And I think it's important too, to kind of take a break from talking about the labels and focus more on, is it making your life unmanageable? You know, which is kind of the criteria when you're talking about an addiction, uh, you know, what's the difference between a, a heavy drinker and, and somebody who's an alcoholic? Well, uh, only that person can really say, whether or not that's a case, you know, a doctor could say, well, they're certainly showing signs of alcoholism, but there are people who you look at their drinking, you'd be like, wow, that's, uh, that's seems a little out of control, but that person is, you know, getting the shit done that they need to get done. They're not getting thrown in jail, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, like you, you were talking about, there's a continuum. It's a small house, right? See, to, to a lot of my friends who live in places like L.A., New York, San Francisco, my house is huge because it's like 3,000 square feet, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a huge house. But see, to Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, 3,000 square feet is a garage. So my house is small. Look, my, my house didn't change sizes to go from huge to small. It, it stayed the same size. It's all about perspective. It, it's the same way with mental illness and mental health challenges, etc. If you come home and drink and you don't have kids, you don't have a wife and nobody's bothering you and it doesn't hurt you and your life is fantastic, then hey, drink. I mean, James Bond, he drinks constantly and he's like, what, 007, a world famous spy? Hmm. But but yeah, if you're neglecting your family, getting fired, if, if, if you're losing friends, if you yourself feel like shit all the time, then it really doesn't matter how much alcohol you're drinking. That alcohol is causing you a problem. Mental illness, much the same way. We all have to sort of choose our own adventure and figure out what recovery looks like to us. And I think that that gets missed in a lot of these conversations. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your personal story. Uh, you live in Ohio now. Were you raised in Ohio? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I was born in Pennsylvania, but raised in Ohio. So, you know, I, I like okay. to give Pennsylvania a shout out just because yeah, it's just, yeah. it's forgotten so often. And so what was uh, family life like uh, growing up? Family life was stressful and, and not for any, ah, these are such tough questions to answer because you're trying to take 18 years and, you know, fit it into mm-hmm. a podcast that's not unwieldy. First and foremost, my mom got pregnant in high school. So my biological father, he, he, he had nothing to do with me. And that means that my mom remarried and I have red hair, 
which means I'm literally a redheaded stepchild. <laughs> that alone says it all, right? The the man who I called dad, he adopted me, right? He, he met me when I was two and a half. He adopted me when I was five. He's the only father I've ever known. And, and he is a wonderful father. I, I love my dad. He's fantastic, right? Except here's the problem. He's, he's a foot shorter. He's small framed. I, I'm large framed. Again, I'm the only redhead in the entire family. I'm the only one with a mental health diagnosis. I, I look different. I look different from my, I, I, on visual inspection, you're like, what's up with that guy? Just a hundred percent of the time. And that, that, that really started to, I became aware of that at a very young age that, that I didn't look like the rest of my family. So when other things started happening, you know, I, I like books and my dad doesn't read. Oh, it's cause he's not my quote real dad. Yeah. And I love that you called, uh, your, your biological father, your biological father, because it always irks me a little bit when people say my real dad, because that always feels like such a snub to the, the father that raised them and and put all the work in. Uh, This is brutal for me. So the dude that impregnated my mother, I call him my sperm donor. And and that's, that's just, I, I I know it paints my mom in a bad light. I like the word load shooter. (laughs) (laughs) The guy who was there at time of conception, right? He, he was, he was, uh, look, not, not, not to be gross about it. He was a turkey baster, right? He, he right. did nothing for me except he, he was there at the moment of conception. Right. All right. Thanks, buddy. He, he gave me a, a, a set of genes and then didn't stick around to help me shape them in any way. The, the, the guy who adopted me, he's my real dad. You know, he, he's the guy that put up with the temper tantrums. He, he's the guy that saved me along with my mother and other members of my family. And I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. They, they, they went through hell. When, when you ask how my childhood was, it, it was brutal. I didn't connect with my family. They didn't connect with me. Nobody understood mental illness, which means they tried to punish the symptoms of bipolar disorder out of me, which made me hate them. And they thought that I was just an asshole because I didn't listen to anything. And the biggest misunderstanding of all of this is that we each looked at the other side like they were the problem, mm. when in reality, bipolar disorder was just standing there making fools of all of us. So... By the time I hit adulthood, while we loved each other, honestly, we did not like each other very much. And that, that, that could have been the end of the story. And, and I'm, I'm so fortunate, Paul, Mm -hmm. that other stuff happened to bring us back together and make us realize that I wasn't an asshole and they weren't bad people. Before we get to what changed, give me some snapshots of childhood when, uh, mental illness began to rear its head, what that looked like. So uh, imagine a a teenager who thinks he knows everything. That's not an uncommon tale, right? Right. But with mania and grandiosity, you don't think you know everything. You know you know everything. And and, and the the, the teenage years are brutal anyways. I, I, I don't think there's any adult, whether they have children or not, that doesn't think that the teenage years are brutal. And I, I was so arrogant because I, I was artificially inflated both by being a teenager and by being manic and, and having th- this grandiosity in me. And it, I, I, I screamed at them. I yelled at them. I ran away. I stole from them. I lied to them. And it, the way that they dealt with all of this was 
by punishing me, which of course just fueled my righteousness because you, you can't punish the symptoms of bipolar disorder away. But here's, here's, here's what's kind of worse. And I think this is a, a thing that most people don't realize. See bipolar disorder, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's secular, right? Which means if I do absolutely nothing, I will cycle from manic to depressed, to hypomanic, to sad. And then of course, right in the middle, normal, stereotypical. So my parents believed that their punishments or their guidance was working, not because it actually worked, but because I would just happen to cycle into... <laughs> yeah, because a broken clock is right twice a day. Exactly, exactly. So if you happen to be tinkering with the clock one minute before whatever time was on that clock, you thought your tinkering worked, which meant when you realized the clock was broken again, you would try that exact same tinkering. It mm -hmm. wouldn't work the next time. And then you would become angry at the clock because after all, you know the clock can do it because you saw the clock do it and the clock is being belligerent. It, I don't even have words for how messed up all of this was, but it was brutal. It was brutal on all of us. And remember, I, 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 I didn't say this, but I have two siblings. I have a brother and a sister. So it was brutal for them as well because they were caught in the crossfire of this, which made me hate them, which made my parents defensive of them, which, which meant we fought, fought and my, my parents had to get in the it, And it took attention away from them, probably. It, it took a ton of attention away from them. Something that I, I, I regret to this day, I, both attention from their, their older brother, like I would have liked to have been closer with them and, and got to know them more in my childhood rather than just hate them. I remember the part where I said that I was half adopted. Mm -hmm. See, the reason I thought we weren't close is because they got half their genes from this guy that I did not get my, my half of genes from. So in my mind, the reason that we weren't close is because we had different biological fathers. I had nothing to do with it. The reason we weren't close is because I was messed up and mom and dad were just constantly fighting with me. And then I would drop out of high school and run away. It was, where would you go when you would run away? <laughs> yeah, there was this asshole and there's once again, doesn't, doesn't, are we allowed to say asshole on your yes. show? Your show seems like a show yes. we can say asshole yeah. on Paul. The, I thought I'd heard you could call him a fuck face. I, if I mean, you wanted. listen, as, as a, as a child, I thought he was just this amazing man. Right. But as an adult, he, he was dangerous. He, he was, he was a dangerous motherfucker. And I don't mean because he was gonna, you know, rob me or I don't, I don't mean anything like that. I, I mean, what he should have said is, look, you need to work this out with your parents. You can't come to my house. But instead, what he said is your parents are assholes. You can come with me. And I would go live at his house for a couple of weeks until things would cycle. And I think, oh shit, mom and dad aren't so stupid. And, and then I would go back home. But what, how old was he? Me. How old were, were you? And what was the allure? Uh, so he was 15 years older than me. So I would have been, you know, 18 and he would have been whatever 18 plus 15 was, mm -hmm. right? He was married with a couple of kids of his own, which makes him slightly more dangerous. I met him because he owned a computer business and I loved computers. Now you, you got it. I'm 45 years old. So you got to get a little bit in the mindset of pre internet days, mm -hmm. finding people that had computers, understood computers and would let you play with their computers was very rare. Computers cost thousands upon thousands of dollars in 1994 money, 1992 money, right? Five, $10,000 is a lot of money today. 
it, it was astronomical 30 years ago. And this man had access to all of these things. And I needed and wanted access to them. And he let me have access. At the time, I thought, no, 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 I, I'm his protege. I, I, he's teaching me. I'm, I'm an intern. I'm his apprentice. In, in, in actuality, he was just using me for free labor and coming in between me and my parents. And it, it could have turned out very scary. The man would, did me I, no I was, favors. I was starting to wonder what his angle was. I was like, was Gabe getting groomed by this guy? But it was financial, not sexual. Uh, definitely. It, it, sincerely, there's a lot of clarity in being 45 and looking back on my 15 year old self, I worked for free. I worked for absolute free. And there wasn't a lot of people that could do these jobs. In some ways, I owe this man something. Mm -hmm. Because when I became an adult, I understood high level networking, which got me jobs at places like CompuServe and America Online. And, and I, I managed global networks at the age of 19, which paid extremely well. Mm -hmm. And I learned all of that under him. So in, in, in a way, he he did kind of fulfill his promise to me, but in actuality, he, he did it for his own gain. Mm -hmm. And I'm just lucky that I was able to take something away from it. Gotcha. Uh, so, so give me some more snapshots of the unmanageability of, uh, you know, maybe some mania snapshots or, or, or some, uh, low point snapshots. There, there's many, many stories that, that, that cycle around my family, and, and I don't even know how to just put them into words. There, there's a phrase that I haven't been able to escape in my family. It's called the wrath of Gabe, and, and that's because I would just fly off the handle. Yeah. Everybody would just be sitting around talking about nothing, and Gabe would start screaming, and, and I, I need to own that. I, I don't mean yelling. I don't mean getting loud. I don't mean getting passionate. No. Start screaming, and the listening would end no matter what is screaming, uh, you know, pounding the table. I, I don't think that I threw anything, but listen, if my mom called up right now and said Gabe threw something, I'd be like, yeah, I, I, I can't dispute that. I'm sure that right. happened. She's not a liar. And this would just come out of nowhere, just nowhere. Do you remember what you were feeling in your body when, when that would happen? Or would you just kind of uh, tune out? A little bit of both. What I was feeling is attacked. What I was feeling is attacked and that nobody's listening to me and I have to make sure that they listen. And there was a protective factor in it too, both protecting me and them. See, they were wrong. And if I didn't set them straight, they were going to get hurt. Because remember, I know everything. So right. I can't let them be wrong or they'll be in harm's way. Ah, so you were feeling a sense of responsibility on top of all of that. You got to be the world's teacher. Yeah, wow. isn't, that, isn't that messed up? Oh, that is such a burden to place on yourself. And uh, people, uh, that, I think that's something that people who are codependent share as well. And they don't even realize the responsibilities that they take upon themselves. And that, you know, because if you look at when somebody who's controlling, what is driving that controlling behavior? Is it is it the fear that you know, if you, if you don't keep things on the right track, there's going to be chaos and you're going to starve or you're going to die. Or is it that you feel like it's up to you to uh, teach everybody to make the world a better place? Otherwise, you're a bad person. I mean, it's it can be so confusing, especially if you throw religion uh, into it. Yeah religion, politics, family, your sense of self-worth. See, remember, if mom and dad didn't listen to me, it meant they didn't love me. 
And you think how what that makes absolutely no sense. And you're thinking, well, the stakes were high, right? Like your your dad was getting ready to, I I, I don't know, like like drive with his eyes closed. And that no 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 no. I, I told them that the movie Pulp Fiction was good, and they didn't want to see it. That's an actual fight that happened in my house. I I berated them for refusing to watch the movie because it was my favorite. It was my favorite movie and I, and they wouldn't watch it. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, why didn't they just watch the movie? I mean, is that, is that a, so so they did and they didn't like it. That means they rejected me. So I went from, they didn't love me and wouldn't listen to me. So now they've rejected what I love. And this is, I, I don't even know if they remember this, but to this very day, there's like a part of me that is upset that they don't like Pulp Fiction, which is the dumbest <laughs> thing ever. Who cares that they didn't like? I, right. I don't like any music my dad likes once we get past like Elvis and the Beatles. Right. So what changed? Was there a bottom? Was there an epiphany? Was there a moment of clarity? I woke up in a psychiatric hospital. There, there's the, there, there was. How old were you? Uh, I was 29, okay. 29, Ooh, 20, that's uh, a lot of years of tornadoes, a, a, a brutal amount. And I did, of course, e- even more damage. The, the amount of damage that I was able to do when my parents were around was, was frankly low because one, once again, hindsight is always twenty twenty. They were incredible. The amount of interference that they ran was, uh, frankly, professional levels. Right. They, they, they actually were saving me from myself in ways that I was completely unaware of. Well, they were they were gone. You know, once once they finally got me through high school, which 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 they along with my grandparents did. Now I'm just alone, and they were done. They they they're like we got them through adulthood. We got them through high school. He's on his own. He's on his own. I, I don't mean that the way it comes out, but no, I think, it, yeah, they're, they're, uh, I think once a kid is out of the house, a certain amount of responsibility has to be taken by that kid for their relationships, their behavior, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, even when they're living in the house, they need to, you know, to, to kind of own their behavior, but yeah, I think anybody listening was thinking, yeah, right on for your parents. At some point, they had to save themselves. Yeah, exactly. And remember, brother and sister, they had to save themselves and concentrate on my brother and sister. And also, they, my father was transferred away from Ohio all the way to Tennessee, about 700-mile distance after I graduated high school and I've, I, I was an adult now and I was, I was graduated. So I stayed back and I was married. So the first thing I did with my newfound freedom of adulthood was, was get married right out of high school. So it, that marriage didn't last because it turns out that women don't like to be married to untreated bipolars. It's, it, it, it's a little known fact, but I feel that your listeners will benefit <laughs> from understanding this. But, but that, that marriage was, it, 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 it was awful for so many reasons. You know, one, the immaturity, the lack of understanding. Did I mention the untreated bipolar part? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that the number one reason that we got married was to piss off our parents. And that's, that's always, that's always. That's a great reason. Was it in so, the vows? I, 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 you know, I don't really remember the vows, <laughs> but I, I don't think it would surprise me if it was, to be honest, <laughs> the, it just, it ended poorly, and it, while we both made many, many mistakes, I, I'm not trying to take on all the responsibility. 
she she did make mistakes of her own but but listen i i did i i i cheated on her like like you know i i've got to own that i cheated on her i screamed at her uh, i want to be clear there was no physical abuse but but listen really that that's like hey we got a divorce but there was no physical abuse but yeah right. there there was an emotional uh, uh, abuse component yeah. i i screamed yeah. at her for everything she took on the role of my parents, which again is, is always a healthy marriage. Uh, all the anger that I had toward the world and the wrath of Gabe moniker went on to her. So instead of sitting around with my parents and screaming for no reasons, I, I screamed at her. Now my parents were adults used to raising children and used to me and loved me unconditionally and frankly handled it better. She was just like, I don't, wh why is my husband screaming? And also she, she was young and inexperienced and, and had a different idea of how marriage was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So she just cried a lot. This is etched into my, my being for the rest of my life. I, I can never make amends for that. Uh, and I've, I've tried, uh, yeah, it, I, I don't even know how to end that story. It's, it's so awful. Yeah. That's, that's not a good time. That's not a good time in the life of Gabe. You know, the fact that you're, that you are owning this and that you've had a shift in perspective and you've clearly rolled up your sleeves and done the work to try to manage your bipolar and that you've taken a hard, painful look at your part in these things. That to me is the overwhelming factor in all of this it's, it's like we you know when we don't know we don't know but once we know then the responsibility is really there to say you know i owe it to myself i owe it to the people around me to do what it takes to to keep myself as, as healthy as i as i can and to make amends where i can did you make an attempt uh to make amends to her or was she not talk to you I've, I've made several attempts over the years and, and, uh, she has, uh, I, I don't want to say that she has rejected them because that makes her sound mean, she right? Probably she probably protected herself. Yeah. She has declined them. Yeah. Uh, she is unwilling to believe that I am any different, that I have changed. She, she sees it as a potential setup or a way to get back in her life. And it, I can't fault her for that. The version of Gabe that she knows she needs to protect herself from. Yeah. I, I, I sincerely wish that I could show her that I am not that guy anymore. But listen, that's not her responsibility. Right. Would I feel better if she did? Yeah, I'd feel yeah. way better. Uh, I think she would feel better too, but that's, that's none of my business, right? right. It, it's, I, Paul, in, 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 in many ways, it's my white whale. She's the only person that I'm aware of that I haven't been able to make up with, uh, or, or to explain to, uh, I, I'm not saying that I got all my friends back that I lost or that, you know, I, I, that all of the relationships are where they could have been if, 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 if all of these things that I had done hadn't have been done, but Many of them have been repaired and we have, you know, a new normal, which mm -hmm. I, I think people can really understand what a new normal is in, in, in yeah. the wake of COVID, but not that one. So talk about your psych ward experience and what, what light bulbs went off or what changed. So I woke up in a psychiatric ward and uh, I, 
I, I didn't know anything about mental illness. I didn't know anything about mental. I, I didn't, I didn't know anything. Right. But, but I did know one thing. I knew what TV taught me and TV taught me that all psychiatric wards have ping pong tables. Now think about that because you know, in every pop culture representation, movies, television shows, whatever, it always shows the patients playing ping pong. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I woke up and realized where I was, I, I thought, okay, I need to center myself, make sure that everything's going to be okay. I just, need to find the ping pong table because once I find the ping pong table, all of the other things will come into place. Right. And then Mm -hmm. I will know that television and movies are accurate and I'll be able to make a plan with my extensive pop culture, culture knowledge of, yeah, you, you, you know where this is going. There was, there was no ping pong table. And, and I I walked around looking for this ping pong table and I became more and more agitated and not finding it. An orderly came over and said, you know, sir, can I help you? And I said, yes, thank you. Where's the ping pong table? And I said, I'm sorry, sir. There's, there's no ping pong table. And I said, well, there, there has to be a ping pong table. And he says, there's, there, there's no ping pong table, you know, sharp corners, paddles, netting. You can't, you can't give psych patients all that. I said, yes, there must be a ping pong table. And, and he said, no. And, and listen, Paul, I, I have, I, I'm 45 years old and so many bad things have happened to me in my life. So many. And that's the worst one. And people say, how could finding out that there's no ping pong table be the worst thing that has ever happened to you? Because it meant that everything that I thought I knew about my brain, my thought process, the world, everything was wrong. I, 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 I thought I knew what was happening in my mind. I, I didn't. And I had to, that, that, that was the moment. That was the moment when I realized I don't know what's going on and I'm not in control here. And that was particularly devastating because the day before, I, I thought I made my own decisions. I, I thought I controlled my own thoughts. I, I, I thought I saw the world the way that the world was. And then I realized that no, somebody else was at the controls. Bipolar disorder was... I, I was just a follower and, and, and bipolar disorder was a leader that I, I didn't even know was around. Mm. And, uh, and were you hospitalized for mania or suicidal suicide? I was, I was hospitalized, uh, uh for suicidal ideation. Somebody, somebody recognized it that, that I was, I was planning on, on killing myself. That, that's, I, I, you, you know, I, I know that it's vogue to, to clean things up with conscientious language and, and person first language. But, but listen, I wasn't, you know, planning to die by suicide. I was, I was planning on killing myself, right? Mm-hmm. That's what was happening in that moment. And, and, and thankfully she saw it and did something about it. Uh, Who is she? The, uh, a woman I was casually dating at the time and she knew what to do. She just knew what to do. And, uh, remarkably did something about it. She asked me, she said, are you planning on killing yourself? I said, yes. I, I thought about suicide as far back as I can remember, Paul. I never remember not thinking about suicide. So therefore I thought it was normal. Mm. I thought that everybody thought about suicide. I thought part of the human condition was considering killing yourself every single moment of every single day. When I looked at everybody else, I just assumed that they were doing it too. The example that I always use is I have never seen most of the world go to the bathroom, but I assume and believe with every fiber of my being that every single human goes to the bathroom. So I would be shocked if I learned that no, half the world doesn't urinate. 
Be like, what do you mean? I was raised to believe that they did. I urinate. I, I, what do you mean? Th- this would be shocking to me as I imagine it would be shocking yeah. to everybody else. Yeah. That's how I thought about suicide. I, I thought it was like urination. Everybody did it. We just didn't talk about it. Right. Ah, uh, it turns out that's not true. Most people do not want to die. So when she asked me, I said yes, because I thought I had help. Right. I, I thought that she would, you know, I was curious as to who would find my body, but yeah, her. Yeah. Yeah. I'll kill myself at noon. You show up at 1230. Mm-hmm. It's a plan. I had some like paperwork I wanted to give to my mom. I was planning on leaving it on my kitchen table and just figured she'd find it. But no, no, this person can drop it off. Yeah. She freaked out. She was, uh, she was, uh, she was shocked and she said, we need to go to the hospital. I said, uh, why would we go to the hospital? I'm not sick. She said, oh my God, we need to go to the emergency room. I looked at her like she was nuts. I said, why would we go to the emergency room? The emergency room is where you go when you get in a car accident, right? Mm-hmm. The emergency room is where you go when you have a heart attack. The emergency room is not where you go when you make the very reasonable decision to end your own life. Uh, she did not agree with that. And, uh, yeah. You know, I, I feel like not telling the rest of the story because it's part of my keynote speech. And I think, hey, if you want to hear the rest of it, you got to pay just like everybody else. But Paul, you're special. She tricked me. She tricked me. She said, I'll tell you what, let's let's go to the emergency room and we'll ask the doctor if this is where you need to be. If this is where you need to be uh, or, or if this is not where you're supposed to be. You, you win and I will buy you dinner wherever you want in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, even in my delusional, depressed and suicidal state, I still had the overwhelming desire to be right and to win an argument and well, frankly, to get a free meal. Mm-hmm. So we hopped in the car, we went to the emergency room and uh, yeah, you all know how the story ends. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I, I was, I was committed that evening. So what change you had that epiphany, your ping pong table moment, uh, and so you started listening to the doctors? Did you start taking meds? What was the 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 new plan of attack? The next thing that happened, I, I was I was left alone with my thoughts for, for a few hours. And then I met with the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist you know sits you down like the psychiatrist does in a mental hospital uh, and, and says, you've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Now at, at the time I'd only ever known one person to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that was a gentleman by the name of Kurt Cobain. He was the lead singer mm-hmm. for the alternative rock band Nirvana. Uh, he had bipolar disorder and he had recently died by suicide. So when I heard this, I just assumed I was dead because I, I figured, you know, Kurt Cobain was rich. Kurt Cobain was famous Kurt Cobain was a once in a lifetime musical talent and he couldn't beat bipolar disorder. I I'm some schlub from Ohio. I'm not a once in a lifetime, anything. So I, I really just, I really thought it was a death sentence. I, I didn't know anybody living well with mental illness or bipolar disorder. There was no hopeful stories. There was just, there was just, it was a shit show in my mind. The next thing is I thought, Oh my God, I could have hurt my family. I, I could have hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. See, I really linked mental illness and violence as hand in hand. Yeah, which and, is such a myth. It, it, it's an incredible myth, but I believed it. I, I feel like a hypocrite now teaching people that that's not true, knowing that for 28, 29, 30 years of my life, I perpetuated that very myth just boldly. And la- every time I saw the news, that guy must be crazy. Gotta be schizophrenia. I can hear myself saying it. I was... I was such an asshole believing this, but 
Nobody told me any differently. Nobody challenged me. Nobody corrected me, which allows the myth to persist. I, ah, but it's, it's because I believed it. I thought, oh my God, I could have, I could have killed somebody. I, I really, really believed it. So just imagine that feeling just for a moment of realizing, doesn't matter that it's not true, but of realizing that your actions could have led to somebody's death. That That's hard to sit with while already thinking that you're going to die from bipolar disorder. And by the way, you're committed to a psychiatric hospital. And earlier that morning, you learned you weren't in control of your own brain. It was a particularly difficult moment, uh, I uh, to, to say the least. And it, and it stuck around for almost a day. I would have given anything, Paul, to have any, any story, a, a, anything, somebody who was living well, just somebody I could think of. Well, wait a minute. Bob has bipolar. Oh, yeah, Bob. Yeah, you know, Bob, the real estate agent. He's got he's got that beautiful wife and three kids and a dog. Doesn't he have that nice house on the court? Yeah, I didn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. There was none of that. I had all the horror stories. I had the dead guy. And then I had me locked in a psych ward. Yeah, it was lonely, hopeless. I... I I, I, I hear myself telling the story and I just, I just don't think I'm doing justice to how I felt it. It, it was, it was painful. It, the, the, the feeling was physically painful in my body. And so what did the psychiatrist suggest and what was the, I was put on medication. Mm-hmm. I was put on medication and I was sent to, uh, you know, I was, I was still in the hospital for, uh, two and a half more days mm-hmm. roughly. So I, I was, I was given medication that, that very moment. I, I, I think the psychiatrist might've handed me my first meds. I'm not, but, but I took them pretty quickly and, uh, and you know, I, I said, okay, I, I trusted the doctor. There was, I didn't have any issue with that. And then I was told that I needed to go to a support group, uh, which met the next morning. And the reason that I remember the support group is because that was the first place that I ever heard anything positive about bipolar disorder. And very specifically, there was this woman, this woman was probably 10 years older than me, you know, maybe 40 years old, 35, 40, maybe she's only, you know, five or six years older than me. But, you know, you do this check-in and support groups. People haven't Mm -hmm. been support groups. One of the things you around, you know, hi, my name is Gabe Howard. I live with bipolar disorder. And this has been a rough couple of weeks or, you know, just whatever, Mm -hmm. or this has been a good couple of weeks. You just, you you do this little one minute check-in and, and she said, you know, hello, my name is a name I can't remember. I live with bipolar disorder. And this is, this has been a good week, but it's, it's been kind of stressful. You know, my, my husband and I, we, we've been having trouble connecting and the, and the kids are getting on my nerves and, and, and work has been tough. I feel like I have no energy at the end of the day and, and my house is really messy and I, I know I need to let that go. Now, listen, I, I don't give a shit about any of that. Here's what I heard. I live with bipolar disorder. I have a spouse. I have a couple of kids. I have a job and I have a house. I, I want all of those things. You have bipolar disorder and all of those things. Listen, it's so much easier to jump off the cliff if you see other people do it first and they have fun and they live. Then all of a sudden you're like, I want to jump off the cliff too. I didn't, I didn't think you could jump off a cliff and live. I didn't think it was possible. I thought a hundred percent of people who jumped off cliffs died. And then I saw this, this 
this beautiful cliff diver. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is, this is amazing. I, I, I want to go to there. And that, that was, these were the first hopeful moments. And I started finding more and looking around for more. And it, it took a lot because the negativity just had been pulverizing me for, mm-hmm. for decades, but the, the, the light started to shine through and this became the basis for very slow forward movement. When I was released from the hospital and I always like to say that that began my four year epic battle against bipolar disorder, because it really did take four years from, from being diagnosed to reaching recovery. It was a very long process. Uh, physically in, in terms of brain chemistry or, uh, you know, socially inwardly, I think it's an all of the above thing. That makes sense. First and foremost, you know, medication is not like what people think. Medication is portrayed so terribly on television. First off, I, I'm saying medication because I think all medication is portrayed terribly on television. But it's a mental health podcast. So mm-hmm. mental health medication is portrayed terribly on all pop culture everywhere because the person is acting erratically somebody invariably says have you taken your meds today that person reaches into their pocket or in a cabinet takes the meds and instantly they're fixed look headache medication doesn't work that way right it it, barely you have a headache you take medication and maybe a half an hour later the headache goes away but it's not instant it's not and and really severe and persistent mental illness and headaches are not even in the same conversation they're not even in the same ballpark they're not the same sport but People think that they are. People think that if you just take your meds, you'll be fine. First off, you have to take the right meds in order to be fine. Mm-hmm. And that's not so easy. That, that it's, it's not so easy to find those right meds because I'm on seven different medications. Yeah, it's a lot of trial and error. A lot of patience. A ton of trial and error. And I don't think people understand that in between each trial and error, in the best of circumstances, is six to eight weeks. Yeah. And that means that you can get into a psychiatrist every six to eight weeks. So if you're on seven medications and the doctor magically gets it right every single time, six times seven is what, 42? Did, did I do the math right? That, that's almost a year. And that's assuming that your doctor is magical and doesn't need to adjust anything, doesn't need right. to, and of course, that you can get into a psychiatrist every six weeks, which is which is not Or even easiest. afford one. Well, yeah, 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 I haven't even... I haven't ripped the bandaid off that one yet for 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 your audience, but yeah. uh, I, I was very fortunate, and I, I could see a psychiatrist with decent regularity. I, I really was seeing a psychiatrist every couple of months, but mm-hmm. the the med would work a little bit, or the med would have a horrible side effect. We'd have to change it. We'd have to raise it. We'd have to lower it. We'd have to. So all of that takes time. Now let's move that aside. Med, I, I hate this magic pill theory. Mm. Oh, you've got mental illness. Just get on meds and you'll be fine. Right. That no medication is, is extremely important for a lot of people living with bipolar disorder. I would not be here without it, but I also would not be here if after the medication allowed me to control my mind, I didn't learn all new coping skills, like yeah. all new coping skills. Like yeah. all of my previous coping skills involved, you know, eating, doing drugs, drinking, uh, screaming at people. That was a good coping skill. You have made me sad. I will yell at you. Uh, Yeah. That's, that's not a good coping skill. Yeah. I, I I like to look at meds as, you know, they don't get us to the finish line. They just get us to the starting block, you know, rather than in the parking lot while the gun, (laughs) you know, (laughs) goes off. It, It, you know, it, it gives you a 
mildly uh, firm footing to then deal with all the shit that life throws at you. Exactly. Exactly. And there, there's a relearning process as well. You know, the, these medications are extremely powerful and, and they need to be because we're dealing with a very serious illness. But if the medication has the power to change the way your brain works to make you healthy, that by definition means that you need to relearn how to control that brain mm-hmm. because the brain that you're used to controlling or the, the brain that I was used to control, it was defective. It was very, very defective. The example that I always use is, Imagine if your power steering goes out right in your car. So, so in order to make like a, like a really hard left, you're, you're putting all of your muscle into it. You're, you're using both arms. You're grabbing your tight. It's really hard because the, the power steering is out, right? So you're just doing all of this effort, but the car does turn left, right? Right. And then after a year, somebody notices this and they're like, dude, I feel so bad for you. I will fix that. That is fantastic. But that means that if you grab the steering wheel and yank as hard as you can, now that the power steering works, you will wreck because you don't need to do that anymore. So you essentially have to retrain your brain to just, you know, do the slight little wheel adjustment and make the normal left turn that everybody else has been making their entire lives. That takes time. That's not instant. Yeah, it does. And in my opinion, it's a lifelong process. It is a lifelong process, you know, but fortunately it's not like a switch turning on or off. It's, you know, it's more like a dimmer and, uh, it's nice cause you get positive feedback, uh, in, in terms of feeling the things in your life that seemed unattainable before peace, tranquility, lack of drama, things, <laughs> things that were just like, you know, it, it, it's like you almost resigned yourself to never being happy. Just somebody that joy was not a part of your plan in life. And when you do get to experience moments like that, it's sometimes a spiritual component can come into your life and you can get in in touch with, or at least believe that there, there's some benevolence in the universe, not just chaos and curse. It. When things start to change for me, two things happened. One, I was so happy. I I mean, literally, I was so happy that the the world wasn't what I thought because it, it, it was, it was kind of brutal out there for me for a long time. So that was, that was very pleasing, very, very pleasing. And then I looked backwards at the, the, the damage. And now that I could see it with, with clear eyes, all of a sudden, mom went from a bitch and dad went from an asshole to mom and dad went, they they became saviors. Mm. I, I was, I, I couldn't believe how cruel I was to the people who literally were saving my life on a daily basis. And it, I, I don't even know how to make amends for that. Do you remember the first conversation you had with them? Not, I, I really, I don't remember the first conversation. I, I remember posting something on Facebook. I, I, I remember posting, I, I, yeah, it, I don't know if this was the first conversation or not. See the, 
I, I really want to say that my parents didn't expect an apology. Like in, in a way, this was like the cool thing about them. They were just like, Gabe's getting better and we're happy. All right, good. We're, we're, we're good. You never owed a debt. So we never expected payment. Right. Now, now I, I went ahead and paid back the money anyway, that money is figurative in, mm-hmm. in this, this situation. Uh, but they did not expect it. But I, I remember posting something on Facebook where I said, if you think you don't love your parents or I, I'm going to butcher it, but mm-hmm. I, I said it, if you think that your parents aren't in your corner, ask yourself this question. If you're trapped on the fourth floor of a burning building and you look out the window, do you want to see them there? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then then your parents are better than you think. And th- this sparked a, a lot of conversation on social media. But the, the reason that I said that is because I thought that my parents were meaningless and worthless and, and did nothing for me. Mm-hmm. But I realized that every single time I got in trouble, I looked up and I expected to see them there. And when I saw them there, I was relieved. I was relieved. Uh, and I've, I've got so many examples of that. And my, my mom saw that. And she was like, well, would you be happy if your dad and I were outside? And I said, I said, yes. And I said, in in actuality, it's a really dumb question because if I was on the fourth floor and the building was on fire, I would not see in you and dad outside because you'd already be be looking for a ping pong table. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, fire buildings have to have ping pong tables. The, the, they'd already be inside. It just, it, it, it wouldn't occur to them not to be, I, I couldn't see them because they wouldn't just be standing there staring at me like dumbasses, right? They, 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 they'd save my life. And I just took that for granted. And my mom said, well, I didn't know you felt that way. And, and I, I said to my mom, I didn't know I felt that way either. I I really didn't. It's been a lot of therapy to realize that you and dad were actually so good at what you did. I didn't even recognize you were doing anything. And I I then realized that, you know, my my dad is my dad is my dad is my dad. Uh, I forget that he's not my biological father. I just do. Uh, So much so that, you know, now that I've reached the age where people are taking medical histories, I I get halfway through my dad's medical history before I say, oh, never mind. He's not my biological. You know how many charts out there? Like father has asthma. Right. Yeah. No. What I need to say is father died of alcoholism and liver cancer because genetically my biological father died of liver cancer due to alcoholism. That's what they want. They they don't, they don't give a shit that the man who raised me. (laughs) Right. But I forget. And so where do you feel like you're, you're at today and where, where is your, uh, like today in terms of your energy level, would you put it? Um, because you have a lot of energy, you know, right now. I've and been called it, loud. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, that's not a criticism. It's just more of an, an observation. Some people, you know, uh, are engaged and animated and other people are kind of chilled and lay back. But I imagine some people listening to this would go, well, I wonder if he's a little bit bit manic because you know his energy is is so up there, and I and I hope that's not uh, that doesn't come across as a a criticism. This this is I think one of the most difficult parts of of managing any mental illness, right? I don't think that that people 
really have a good understanding of what the terms mean, right? right. Depression doesn't mean sadness. You right. tell people, hey, I'm depressed. And like, you know, I'm depressed too. Right. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm clinically depressed. Right. I, I have major depression. You're sad. And they're like, well, I don't understand. The same thing happens with mania, right? Mick Jagger is not manic, but the, the man's 78 years old and still runs across the stage right. screaming, I can't get no satisfaction to this giant band. And I understand why people want to use that as an example of mania right. i mean the lights going off eighty thousand people screaming the song that this guy holding a microphone down i mean there's even a whole song moves like jagger right the man is not manic right. he just has that performance energy right. uh I, I am not manic i just have a lot of energy i'm an extra i love people and you're passion. an advocate yeah. for this but I, I just i wanted to bring that up as an interviewer because i thought some people are probably going to think is that guy taking his meds you know he's he's amped up but you know i get that way sometimes i i don't i've never experienced you know full mania i've experienced hypomania but sometimes if i'm talking about guitar or hockey or mental health you know i'll go on a rant and be really really forceful about what i'm talking about and so um that's that's why i wanted to mention it I think it's a good thing to mention and it's understandable why it would come up. And, and as a, as a person who lives with bipolar disorder and considering what I've put my family through, I, I do understand why when they see certain things that are reminiscent of other things, their trauma goes off, right? I know we're talking about the audience, but you know, fuck the audience. We're going to talk about my family for a moment. Mm -hmm. You know, when I get like real ramped up or real angry or real passionate about something, I understand why they go to, uh Oh, are, are we seeing the, the, the mm -hmm. de-evolution of Gabe's stability? Is this the first step in what's going to end up with Gabe back to the way he was? I understand why they feel that way. But the flip side to that is that's like a real burden, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm never allowed to be passionate for fear that people will think I'm manic. Right. I'm never allowed right. to be angry for, pe for fear people will think that I'm being violent. Right. It, it's very, very difficult to manage because... It, people make these assumptions about you when they hear that you have bipolar disorder. And one of them is excitement is mania. Nope. Excitement is just excitement. But, but again, let's flip it back the other way. If I do start exhibiting symptoms of bipolar disorder, like I'm, I'm, I'm deescalating sliding, or I'm going mm -hmm. back. I, I do want them to stop me. So, so what do I do? Uh, and the answer is it, I ask them to be real sure before they say anything to me and I listen to them with grace and I don't get angry at them. Even if I am angry, because sometimes I'm just like, I can't believe you're asking me this. Look, I'm allowed to be pissed off. All right. That thing that happened angered everybody in the room, but you're worried about me. Mm -hmm. But I put that trauma trigger there. I didn't do it on purpose. But I put it there. And, I, and, and the thing that I like about that is that you are reminding yourself that they're well-meaning. And that, that's, I imagine, one of the tools that you developed uh, in your recovery was to suss out, you know, what is my filter? What am I filtering reality through, even when I'm stable and on my meds? You know, what's, what's my historical negative belief about myself and others? It's very difficult. It's very difficult to figure out where those boundaries are. I am extraordinarily fortunate now 
because I'm married. I've been married for a decade. She does not have any mental health issues. She didn't know me when I was really, really sick. She's taken all sorts of mental health classes. She's learned from the greatest mental health advocate in the world. Uh, Paul Gilmartin, who listens to your show. No. <laughs> I I suddenly think less of her. <laughs> you know, me too. Actually, I'm a mental health advocate too. What the hell, lady? I but but seriously, she's she's done a really great job of educating herself. But I point this out because now she can be a gatekeeper. So now, when other people around me that knew me then are worried something's up, rather than coming to me, they can go to her. Yeah. And she is the one person that has 100% access. I, I do not get to tell her no. That's the agreement. Mm-hmm. If she comes comes up to me and says, Gabe, I think you're manic. You need to go to the doctor right now. It does not matter how passionately I disagree with her. Mm -hmm. It does not matter if I am 100% right. And I have the full backing of the general assembly of California saying you're wrong lady. I have to listen to her. That's the deal. Uh, and, and, and who cares? Let's say that she's wrong. It doesn't matter. And She's never had to invoke this, knock on wood, but she's allowed to ask me questions that other people are not allowed to ask me, but everybody's allowed to ask her. So it's a cool role for her to agree to take on. That's awesome. She sounds like a really lovely woman. Again, the only thing, again, she has no mental health issues except that she married me. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's, let's, let's. Let's break this down. No mental health issues, but she agrees to marry a guy who's twice divorced, best friends with his ex-wife, has been committed to a psychiatric hospital and has bipolar disorder, and by the way, is a redhead. There's something wrong with her. I don't know what that's called, but it will be in the DSM-6. And She loves charity. I I, oh, that is true. She is a very good person. Yes. Oh, wow. I'm her pet project. I am her Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which also ended in divorce. Oh, shit. I don't like this at all, Paul. I don't like this at all. I think this would be a nice, awkward moment to end end the interview on. (laughs) Buddy, I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. And uh, just kudos on on all the work you've done and uh, getting out there and speaking and doing the podcast Inside Mental Illness. Inside mental health. Inside you, mental health. You own mental illness in That's all podcasts right. with, yes. with mental illness happy hour. Yeah. If I called it inside mental illness, people would be like, you copied off Paul. Yeah. Well, well, well a lot it. of people call it the mental health happy hour. Those people and, are wrong. Yeah, they are wrong. Super wrong. Yeah. I'm inside mental health because I'm educational. Your mental illness happy hour because it's a happy I'm hopeless. hour. I'm, no, I'm hopeless. You're hopeless. <laughs> yeah. You're entertaining and I'm boring. That makes people want to tune in. Uh, <laughs> no, but sincerely, it, I... I know it's a shameless plug, but I'm just going to take it. Uh, it. It's a cool educational show, and it's like a 25-minute lift. Yeah. And uh, you know who's going to be on it? Who? Paul Gilmartin. I can't wait. I, it, it's going to be fat. You know, you're a returning guest. Yeah. You were on it before. I almost never have anybody on it twice. You're I, in a very rare club, sir. I like it. I, I like, like it. it. Too. Uh, and uh, if people want to hire you to speak... Uh, they do it through your website or yeah, the podcast. Yeah, GabeHoward.com. GabeHoward.com. And people can follow you on social media at? GabeHoward29. GabeHoward29. Yeah, I was 29 years old when I created all this. We figured that. Yeah. I wasn't born in 1929. I don't want that <laughs> image stuck in people's. You know, m- millennials are doing that, right? Yeah. Like like my wife, everything is 85 because she was born in 85. Mm-hmm. 
I'm like, whereas I'm 29. So I'm like, what if, what if like young people are like, we can't hire him. He was born in 1929. Yeah. People it's, knew you were manic because of how, how hard you were doing the Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> I, I rocked it out yeah. before rock. Yeah. So. <laughs> thanks, Gabe. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Gabe. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Let's do some surveys. This is from the misophonia survey. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term, it's uh, sound sensitivity. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Sad Cat. Um, What noises trigger you? Chewing. Taking the pen cap taking the pen cap on and off. Any repetitive sounds. Yesterday, a girl was putting down cards on a table loudly for five minutes, and it bothered the shit out of me. When people rub their feet together and their socks make sounds. Excessive finger cracking. Snoring. Huge one for me. Squeaky things that aren't supposed to be squeaky. Wheels on grocery carts, etc. Scratching sounds on really dry skin. Is your relationship with the person making the noise affected by their noises? It used to be just my dad that I would get triggered with, but now it's everyone. Are you comfortable telling people about your sound sensitivity? Sometimes. It usually pops up when I'm in PHP, which is a partial hospitalization, groups for therapy because there's a lot of anxious people there and they shake their foot when and if I feel comfortable with the group I tell them kindly I always feel like I'm being high maintenance what have the reactions been when you've told people they don't know what it is they say oh they say okay tell me if I'm ever doing anything and then they usually forget right away do you have other sounds other sensory sensitivities smell touch taste sights etc Yes, exclamation point. Sights, exclamation point. Repetitive movements bug the crap out of me. Shaking legs, rubbing feet together, even just the circling your ankle around multiple times. Uh, Finger picking and skin picking. Have you ever struggled with food issues? Yes, I've struggled since I was 12. I'm 21. It goes back and forth between restricting and then binging with a few purges. How long have you had misophonia? Since I can remember, I think it started to get really bad at 8. How many times a day do you get triggered? Depends on the environment. If I'm home, isolating, zero. If I'm home and I'm hanging with my parents, probably 3 or 4. And if I'm in treatment, probably 7 plus. Do you feel guilty about your triggers or the way you respond to them? Yes. 
I feel like people deal with anxiety in different ways, and when I tell them about misophonia, I feel like I'm saying stop feeling anxious. Have you been diagnosed with a mental or physical health disorder or issue? And if so, do you believe it's connected to your misophonia? Uh, Depression, anxiety, PTSD, eating disorder, unspecified. I don't think it's connected. Well, I guess it makes my anxiety start slash go up when someone is making a noise or doing something that triggers me. Do you have a history of trauma, sexual, physical, emotional, or emotionally disinterested or unavailable parents? I was sexually assaulted by an ex-boyfriend at 15 on Halloween. My parents were workaholics and didn't give me a lot of attention when I needed it. Also, they invalidated me or would try to stop making me feel sad. Did you ever experience trauma to the ear, for instance, a loud sound prior to the onset of your misophonia? No. Have you tried any kind of therapy, medications, or tools for your misophonia? No, I've told a few psychiatrists, but no one seems to know about it and doesn't really seem to care either. Thank you for sharing that. And, I, and uh, thanks to the, the listener who suggested and helped me put that, uh, that survey uh, together. This is uh, from the Hall of Fame Awfulsome Moments. My girlfriend told me uh, last week, she's like, by the way, that one awfulsome moment that you read, uh, that's the third time you've read that. I was like, oh my God, welcome to my golden years. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Shepard. And it was years ago that we read this one, but I'm reading it again because we're a little low on awfulsome moments. And uh, he writes, when one of my best friends had died in high school during the candlelight vigil in the parking lot, someone began singing that dreadful Sarah McLaughlin song that's in the ASPCA ads. Before anyone else joined in, someone else blurted out, He hated that fucking song. Stop singing it before I shove that candle up your ass. Everyone started laughing so hard that the tears of sadness became tears from laughing, and what started out as a solemn moment turned into a night where we reminisced about all the wild, hilarious hijinks that he was notorious for. I think he would have approved, especially about the candle. Awful some. That is awful. Some thank you for that. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Childhood. Fuck that. He identifies as bisexual. He's in his 20s, says that he was raised in a stable and safe environment, but I would question that. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, he writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I don't really remember what happened, but I remember being in a constant state of fear growing up. My mom would always fly off the handle for practically anything. She'd scream at us and hit us. Then she'd calm down and apologize and pretend like everything was okay, but it wasn't. Rinse and repeat. He's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about hurting people and myself, but then I feel guilty about it darkest secrets. I'm pretty sure I was raped as a kid. Most of my childhood is a black hole, but there are pockets of memories, none of them good. I've had nightmares about being sexually abused, and my porn addiction is influenced by those thoughts. My therapist asked me to go to an SLAA group meeting, and I plan to. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, incest porn or MILF porn, but it grosses me out that I like that. I would say People who 
aren't bothered by what turns them on are probably in the minority. That's just an educated guess, but uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I don't think that there is any point to do that. What, if anything, do you wish for? To be mentally healthy. Have you shared these things with others? My therapist, and she is helping me through it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Shitty. Well, buddy, I appreciate you taking the time to to fill that out. And um, I really hope you do follow through on going to, to that support group. This is a happy moment filled out by Mother's Perfect Doll. And she writes, I was curled up next to my boyfriend watching him play video games on his laptop. I watched as he calculated every move and hit the keys with precision. We would celebrate every level he cleared and gave each other a kiss. He would be beaming with joy. I retold his moment to my therapist, and as I was saying it, I realized that three years ago I was on food stamps and hating myself. I hated myself so much that I was convinced that no one would ever love me. If your own mother doesn't love you, how can anyone else? I remember feeling a strong sense of disgust towards Valentine's Day and intense panic around Christmas as I tried to figure out who actually loved me enough to want me to be in their presence for the holidays. My therapist started cheering me on and pointed out how much I have grown since starting, and naturally, I deflected since compliments are hard. Still sitting next to my boyfriend while I watch him play his games made me feel something that I can so describe as love. That's beautiful. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the first day in therapy survey filled out by a woman uh, in her 20s. And what brought you to therapy? Quarter life crisis. She's she's, uh, between 18 and 25. Quarter life crisis. I've never felt so unmotivated, unsure, and unhappy with my life. Any fears associated with starting therapy? I thought my problems and feelings were not worth the effort to see a therapist. I was afraid that those fears would be realized and that the therapist wouldn't understand how heavily it's impacted me. Did any of those fears come true? Somewhat. I felt like the weight of my thoughts and troubles wasn't really being understood. That might also be my fault. Perhaps I didn't explain how I truly felt or didn't explain it in enough detail. What has worked best for you in therapy? It was great being able to share my true feelings without worrying about how this might impact my relationships. I felt like I could finally be honest with myself and to be able to externalize those thoughts and feelings without worry is just, (coughs) excuse me, is just such a great feeling. Uh, What were your initial impressions of your therapist? I thought my therapist was really kind and compassionate. I was presently surprised at how composed he was even when I was bawling my eyes out. Do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? Yes, my therapist is a neutral person in my life. No affiliation with any friends or family. I feel less anxious and less afraid of saying something that might affect my relationships, so I feel like I can be honest. Anything you'd like to share with a new a group of new therapists? A friendly smile and a touch of kindness can go a long way. Thank you for that. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this one is a bit intense and has some graphic parts in it. Uh, this is filled out by a, a woman who calls herself 
coasting through failure. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised, uh, she says, in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, One instance, uh, yes, and never reported it. And in another instance, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, She writes, I lost my virginity when I was 12 years old to a boy who pressured me into it. To make matters worse, his aunt walked in on us and scolded me, but didn't tell my parents. I never had the voice to say no. When I was 14, I cut school and drank vodka for the first time at a friend's house, just us girls. I drank too much, not knowing any limits, being that I had never drank before and end up yakking away in her bathroom. Her older brother came in and held my body up by my chin, tilted it back, and put his dick in my mouth. He was in his 20s. This time, I had no control over my body or my voice. I tried telling my friend afterwards, uh, but was shrugged off. When I was 17, some guy followed me into the bathroom. Uh, I pulled my pants on immediately, and he pushed me against the wall and forced his hands into my pants. He grabbed at all of me. This time was different. I fought him off, but then a woman walked in and held the bathroom door shut. I've never felt so betrayed by a stranger. I fought her off too and ran out of the party into the street and just kept running. I slept at the train station until it opened the next morning. I was too ashamed to call anyone for help. I deserve what happened because I had flirted with him earlier that night. Wow, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And, you know, there are a lot of analogies for the self-blame that you are unfairly putting on yourself, saying that you deserve what happened because you flirted with that guy. You know, that would be like saying, well, you know, I agreed to have a, a doctor take my tonsils out, so I can't complain that he sawed my arm off. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Um, All my boyfriends hit me. They roughed me up and punched me and have been overly aggressive during sex. So many of my relationships have been emotionally abusive, including with my mom. My boyfriends all seem to have the same idea about me, which made me feel certain it was true. I would never find anyone better than them, never be worth anything to anyone, and should feel lucky to even be in their presence. My mom always made me feel like something was wrong with me. When she found out that I wasn't a virgin, she backed me into a corner, smacked me around, and called me a slut. Through my teenage years, there was a lot of name-calling, slut and bitch leading the pack. Any positive experiences with abusers? Well, it wouldn't be abuse if it didn't also... If I didn't also love my abusers, now would it? My mom always called me her twin as well. The irony in that. She has always been fun, confident, and full of energy. All the things that I am not. Everyone likes her. She has no idea that I consider her abusive. Darkest thoughts. Hurting my children or seeing them being hurt and not helping. They are the single most important thing I've ever had, and sometimes I imagine them falling down a flight of stairs, a sinkhole swallowing them up, or them flying out of a car window during an accident. 
Other times I wonder what child molesters would think while looking at my children. I know I am not attracted to them in that way at all, but I feel like I can somehow protect them more if I understand what evil demon molesters think. I hate myself for it. Darkest Secrets. I overheard an argument between my parents. My mom was yelling at my dad because she caught him wearing my underwear. She was accusing him of being turned on by his own daughter. I was a teenager at this time, but I also remember feeling my dad's boner through his pants when I sat in his lap as a small child, maybe five years old. He never touched me or looked at me lustfully, so I still have no idea what to make of it. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think about a huge gangbang with men of all shapes, sizes, and colors lining up for me. It makes me feel gross, and I could never want that in real life, but when I think of it, I imagine myself feeling powerful. Then that turns to shame immediately after thinking so. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to blame my mom for everything, the way she blames everyone and everything else for everything. Even if it truly isn't at all her fault, I want her to take my shame and guilt from me and martyr herself as I would for my children. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could smile and feel free like those bitches in the medication commercials, even for just one day. Have you shared these things with others? I have shared with my husband only, who is not abusive at all and has some experience with mental health services. I feel that I earned him, truly a great husband, from all the years of bullshit I endured. He is wildly supportive. How do you feel after writing these things down? Kind of freaked out, like maybe I am over-exaggerating and also still not sure if these experiences count as abuse. Yes, they absolutely count as abuse. I have heard horror stories from close female friends and have always thought, wow, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm 30 years old and just realized that these occurrences weren't my fault. Still halfway, trying to convince myself that's true. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Uh, It would be like that meme where they show two friends giving each other meaningful advice when neither of them actually know shit. (laughs) So no. Thank you for for filling that out. And I really uh, hope you're, you're on the path of having compassion for yourself because I think for a lot of us that's the beginning of turning the corner. I mean, nothing will keep us stuck like, you know, telling ourselves that the abuse was our fault. This is uh, from the love survey filled out by Rednecks Leg leg Syndrome. And uh, they write, I love noticing other other people's faces lit up in the busy streets as they get excited over my dog Haggis. Most of the time, they don't even look at me, and that's great. I love having him off the leash in the park where he can run freely. He's so full of joy and carefree. I love talking to my friend about a new Mental Illness Happy Hour episode and sharing what we can relate to. I love the work that's involved in grinding your own coffee beans and how it sometimes makes the coffee taste way better. I love listening to people talk about what they love or what they're really passionate about. I love when my boyfriend leaves early in the morning and I get to turn around again and sleep a bit longer. I love the feeling of being in a sauna that's almost too hot to handle. 
So hot, it's hard to breathe, but still feels so good. That is an awesome one. I love when a podcast or song ends just as I put the keys on the lock and get home. I love cooking a healthy meal that I know is nourishing my body and mind. And I love when I finally stop procrastinating and work on my thesis, even if it's just writing a paragraph. And then I reward myself with taking a month off. That's <laughs> fantastic. And then finally, this is uh, an awfulsome moment from the past. We read this one years ago. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Fran Baxter. And she writes, I lost my husband to suicide a few weeks ago. He ended his years-long battle with chronic pain and depression on his terms, being kind enough to spare me from having to find him or identify his body. I forgave him, even though I miss him dearly. He's out of pain, and with a lot of people he admired uh, and the cats that we loved. A dear friend who was a lover before I met my husband came over today on his way to visit a relative. I wanted to experience intimacy with someone I trusted as a way of helping me grieve, and my friend was happy, happy to oblige me. We had no set expectations except showing each other enthusiastic consent. I had a feeling I'd cry a few times, uh, in parentheses, sense memory triggers, and I did. My friend was as kind and loving as he was nearly half my life ago. After the really great sex was over, I could faintly hear my husband's voice. See, I told you my cock wasn't as special as you thought it was. You came just as easily just now as you did with me. I couldn't help but laugh and share that with my friend. My husband knew me better than I knew myself sometimes, and it is awfulsome to know that he was right about this too. It is also awfulsome to be able to fuck another man again because my marriage vows have expired. Oh, thank you for that. I love I love any podcast episode that ends with a little cock. Is that wrong? If that's wrong, I don't want to be right. Anyway, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode. Thank you to everybody that, that makes this podcast possible. Thank you to our monthly donors and our one-time donors. Um, if you're ever interested in helping the show financially, just go to our website, metalpod.com, and you can donate through PayPal or Patreon. Um, and you can donate by taking the surveys. That is a nice non-financial way that you can you can help out the podcast, especially the happy moments and awfulsome moments and loves surveys, because those are those are my favorites. And um, yeah, just uh, never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely